Ruth is a wonderful story. And although it's titled Ruth for a good reason, I think it might just as well be titled The Book of Naomi. Because really, she is at the center of the story. And it is a story of deep sorrow and personal loss. It's a story of struggling faith and stunning redemption. You know, when I mentioned to our community group leaders about a week and a half ago, we were having an organizational meeting, but I mentioned that we were headed into a study of the book of Ruth. There was a visible and audible response that was really sweet to me. That's because many of us already love the book of Ruth, love the story, love how it, how it turns uh, so beautifully and surprisingly. But Ruth is more than a sweet story of restoration and romance. It's way more than a Hallmark script. Uh, although as I read this book, I feel like, man, it has some echoes, or maybe I should say the Hallmark Channel has echoes of this. But doesn't every great story have loss and desperation and conflict and struggle, and then there's a turn? That's because all great stories reflect the one great story of God who rescues. So it is a wonderful story about real people who lived a long time ago, but it is chiefly a book of God's sometimes mysterious and sometimes hidden activity, but always his kind and powerful sovereign activity in the lives of ordinary people. There's no mention of God's audible voice in this story. There are no divine dreams that he reveals to the characters in the dead of night. There are no miracles that wow the characters or us as readers. There are no angelic messengers who appear for the benefit of the struggling family. But it is crystal clear through the course of events, and these events play out in no less than 11 years. So remember that, because it's a story you can read in about 15 or 16 minutes. But what's captured here plays out over a long period of time. It's crystal clear, however, through these events that God is powerfully and personally at work in the lives of ordinary people like you and me. And this book is written for our learning, to learn the great character of God. It's it's written for the growth of our faith, that we might have reason to hope, even when circumstances would say it's hopeless. The book of Ruth and the life struggles of Naomi in particular take us to some fundamental questions that every person wrestles with. Questions like these. What are we to do when we face life-altering situations and conditions that are way beyond our control? Where are we to go when our resources are depleted? Is there any kindness or grace to be found in this world? I think that's a question we all wonder about at the moment. Is there any scenario in my future that includes real rest? Well, surprisingly, these questions are answered quite emphatically in this story, and they're answered by God himself in the way he works and what he does, and it it really is an emphatic, yes, there are great reasons to hope. There are great reasons to trust. So if your Bibles have not been opened yet, I want to invite you to open your Bible to Ruth. Ruth is a little four-chapter book. As I said, you could probably read it in 15, maybe 20 minutes if you read somewhat slowly and very carefully. Uh, It's tucked in between the book of Judges, and I'll allude to that in a moment, and 1 Samuel. 
And what I'd like to do is read the entire first chapter, which will take us about three and a half minutes. So you follow along as I read Ruth 1, then we'll pray together and dig into this beautiful story. This is the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband, Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we praise you on this day for your eternal word. What a gift it is. 
It's not just a, a precious and true record of events that unfolded long ago in the lives of ordinary people, but it is the record of your powerful work in this world. It is the record of your great glory, your perfect character, your steadfast love, and your endless mercy. And we ask that as we open this word together, you would open our hearts that we might receive the truth, that we might believe all that you have revealed, that for those who have walked away from you, that this would be the day where they return to that place of relationship with you, where they return and seek the blessing that comes from your hand, where they return that they might find shelter in the shadow of your wings. Oh, Lord God, do not let any person here wander any longer, but we ask that you would bring each into that sweet place of, uh, of rest of soul, of peace of mind, of confidence that their sins are forgiven, that relationship with the living God is real and lasting, a place of blessing. There are so many needs represented by this assembly today that we could hardly begin to enumerate all of them, but how we thank you that all of our needs are met in our Redeemer, Jesus. So come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, kind Heavenly Father. Meet us where we are, but do not leave us as we are. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, here at the outset of this story, there's a dark moment that is being uh, recorded in Israel's history. That opening phrase, if you will look at it again, sets this book in its proper context, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, if you've never read the book of Judges, and you do, just be forewarned, it is a difficult read. There are moments of brightness, there are moments of encouragement, moments that would even inspire you to live a life of faith, but this is a, a really dark period of time in Israel's history. So somewhere between Joshua's death, which we would say roughly the mid-14th century B.C., and the ministry of Samuel, who is among the last of the judges, again, somewhere mid-11th century, so for a period of 300 years, there is this cycle in Israel's history, a cycle of rebellion and faithfulness where the people turn away from God. Then God appears in, in the form of discipline, and it comes in various forms, uh, typically through oppressors, nations that live around Israel who come. There are also uh, calamities, some of which we will touch on in just a moment, where the people feel this great pressure. It softens their heart. They turn to God, cry out for mercy and deliverance, and he sends a judge. And so Judges is the record of that cycle. And as one author writes, the book of Judges teems with violent invasions, apostate religion, unchecked lawlessness, and tribal civil war. No thank you. I don't want to live in that era, and I'm fearful that our present day is turning into that. It was a difficult period, and the judges themselves are a mixed bag of characters. I mean, you've got some that you would say, good guy or, or good woman, like Deborah and Barak. But then you have Gideon and Samson. Gideon, pretty good guy, but boy, he doesn't end well. And Samson, please keep him away from my children. 
And by the time you read to the end of the book, the sad summary statement hardly begins to express or capture the lawless anarchy that is characterizing the land. You can flip back one page and see this recorded in Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does that sound familiar? This little book is packed with important spiritual truth and lessons for people who want to run their own lives and be their own king. It's also packed with hope for those who feel the great frustration that they live in a culture that doesn't want to acknowledge or honor God, serve him, obey him, but personally know that that's what they have to do and and must do. Well, it's not only a a dark moment in Naomi's homeland where in one sense we could say there's a governmental crisis, there's lawless anarchy, but there's also a, a, a personal crisis, if you will. There's a catalyst that God uses in the life of this family, and I, I think based on the full understanding of Scripture, it's a catalyst that is really a test for them, but God's able to redeem the failures in our testing And what's the catalyst? Well, it's famine. That's the next line that appears. There was a famine in the land. Is this just another moment in human history where, you know, farming didn't go so well that year? Maybe they didn't understand climate change. They had developed alternative energy sources and irrigation plans. No. Famine came because of Israel's spiritual disobedience. You see, if you go back to the Pentateuch and look at one of the books that Moses wrote under direction of God and gave to Israel, he lays out the terms of that covenant relationship, that special relationship that that God entered into with Israel. And in Deuteronomy 11, verses 13 and following, you read several things that that, uh, help us to understand really what was taking place. The Lord had said through Moses to his people after he rescued them from Egypt and the slavery that they were under there, he said, if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. But in those same verses, he goes on to say, take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. So for Israel to experience famine is a disciplinary action of God to correct their faithlessness, to correct the apostasy that many of them were entering into, to correct the idolatry that many of them were devoting themselves to. You know, the Bible makes several significant points concerning calamities like these. Because at the end of the day, at the beginning of the age, from the beginning to the end. He's the creator and sustainer of the universe, and that includes earth with all of its seasonal cycles. And the biblical data demonstrates that God is the one who sends drought. God is the one who sends famine. God sends pestilence and calamities of many kinds. And when he does, it is always to get the attention of people created in his image. If you want to know my opinion on climate change, I'll tell you that I think we are looking for solutions in the wrong places. 
We're arguing over fossil fuels and clean energy, and God Almighty is trying to get our attention about the pollution and corruption in our souls. So when people say, as one of our prominent political leaders, I won't name her, but as she is recorded saying two years ago with respect to the wildfires that were raging through California and the West for that part, it wasn't just limited to California, she said, Mother Earth is angry. She's telling us, whether she's telling us with hurricanes on the Gulf Coast, fires in the West, whatever it is, that the climate crisis is real and has an impact. And I think Mother Earth, God Almighty, is angry. Has anyone stopped to think for a moment that perhaps he's seeking to get our attention as he did in the days of the judges? That he is both ordering and permitting an increasing pressure on our souls through the environment, through economic hardship, through military conflict, through political unrest that would drive us back to him to humble ourselves under his mighty hand and repent of our sins and return. But being the self-righteous legalist that we are, we continue to seek solutions that do everything but address the heart issues within. We just want to, we, we just want to change behavior and environment. The famine here is a catalyst designed by God to bring about heart change. But for Naomi and her family, it is a, it is a catalyst at this moment for geographical change. And that moves us into the second big section of this first chapter. So it's not only a dark season in the history of Israel, but it's a dark season in Naomi's personal story. Look at the text with me again. Verse 2 says, The name of the man, her husband, is Elimelech. The name of his wife, Naomi. The name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Now let's pause for just a moment to explore the meanings of these names because they're significant to the story. And beginning with her husband, Elimelech is a name that means, My God is King. Now again, throw that in its context when there was no king in Israel, everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. Well, I'm going to say that at minimum, we can, we can fill in a little blank here about Elimelech's parents, that they were people of faith. Because choosing names for children was more than just, does it sound pleasant to the ear? You know, is it going to, can we honor Grandpa Abraham uh, you know, by naming this child after him? No, the, the Jewish people in particular chose names that were packed with meaning. It's unclear to me, honestly, if Elimelech himself was a man of, of great faith or weak faith. I, I, I swing back and forth on this. I think his choice to take the family out of the promised land and go to Moab is demonstration that he's not connecting all the dots that the Lord wanted to. But I'm thinking if, a, if, if I, as husband and father, am watching my children and my, my dear wife potentially starve to death, we're going to go find food. So I want to be careful that we're not too hard on him. Naomi's name means pleasantness or my delight. Just remember that when we come to the end of the story here. And then Malon and Kilion, Malon's name means sickly. Kilion means wasting away. You know, is that, is that autobi- or biographical? Wow, what? I mean, really? Maybe they were born with great sickness. Maybe they were born as frail little boys who barely survived. We, we don't know the details, but it sets a tone. And certainly the names of these two boys serve as a spiritual metaphor for the nation they were part of at that moment. And then the author of this story writes, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, in Judah. Twice he tells us in these opening verses, they're from Bethlehem, they're from Bethlehem. Now, again, if you go back and read through Judges, 
you're going to find Bethlehem mentioned a couple of times, and it's, it's not a great place to be living. Bethlehem had been the center of raw, faithless, sinful activity. It's not a town where you would book a verbo. So in some ways of thinking, you know, it makes sense that they would be looking to relocate. And the storyteller says they went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. There are three terms that the storyteller stacks up in these first few verses that deepen the sense of of what's happening here. And I want to say it would even deepen the sense of loss that Naomi as a woman was experiencing. Guys, it's difficult for us to tune in at, at a particular level that the ladies here would really feel in something like this. But pay attention to these three terms. They will help. Initially, they went to sojourn. That has to do with we're just going to go there for as long as we need to. It has a kind of an open-ended period of time. But then verse 2 says they remained there. And then verse 4 says they lived there about 10 years. Probably initially it was a well, until this famine is broken and the crops you know, spring up and food supply returns, we, we just got to go somewhere we can eat. But you have a clear sense as it rolls on, it's dragging on and on and on. Ladies, how much does your home mean to you? I'm not saying that home doesn't matter to men, but it's just different. Men think of home as a physical structure. That's why, for the most part, we really do think I, I could live anywhere. Ladies, what, how, how do you value the physical structure, though? See, I've come to learn some things after we left South Carolina after so many years and moved here five years ago. And while we love Utah, we're not looking to, to return. From time to time, my wife will talk about our old home. I miss that house. And when we dig in a little more, she does miss the physical structure, but it's not about the physical structure. It's a place that's packed with memories. That's when the kids were little and cute and sweet, and, you know, we go down all that. <laughs> you know, when I think about that house, I have some memories similar to that, but I can also say, remember that big repair we had and when the sewage system this and the septic system that? It's just different. See, home is a place where the heart is rooted, where the treasured relationships have been established and where life itself is nourished. It's where the holidays and birthdays are celebrated, where the memories are made. And Naomi has to turn her back on all of that and go to a place that she doesn't know. And as a matter of fact, anybody who had, who had heard the words of Moses, and they had been passed down. I mean, she's a woman of faith. She's got to be thinking as they leave the promised land and go to a nation that historically has been on the enemy list. She's got to be thinking, this is not good. And to deepen that sense of loss, verse 3 tells us, the husband of Naomi died, and she was left with her two sons. She's left with sickly and wasting away. There's hope for you. And then verse 4, these took Moabite wives. I mean, seriously, like, now we're marrying into paganism outright? And perhaps they did it in desperation, and we, we do learn some things about these uh, women that says th- it, it turned out well. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Here she is, bereft of her sons, bereft of her husband. This is the Old Testament definition of destitution. She's lost the protection and provision that her husband provided. She's lost the protection and provision that her two sons would provide. And the real questions now are, are, are at, a, at, at a 
existence level. Who will plant the crops and work the fields so that Naomi will have an income? Who will carry on the family name or raise up grandbabies? Who will come for Sabbath dinners or send a card at Mother's Day? And the answer is there's no one on the horizon. I wonder if you've ever experienced a devastating loss or even a series of sorrows that left you in a place, whether physically or economically or even just emotionally destitute, where you reached a point of saying, I I can't take any more of this. God, what are you doing to me? Where does someone like Naomi turn? Where do you turn when you reach that place of, of destitution? And here in the story before us, so that's the first five verses, and we're like, do we really want to read on? And the answer is, oh, yes, you do, and you know it. We've already read a little bit that, that turns uh, our hope, brings a little light into a very, very dark moment. And, and look at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab. Now, that tells you a little something. She's out there just getting it done because nobody else is there to do it for But there she is in the fields of Moab, a place she probably never asked to go to, certainly not where she wants to live out her days, but she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people. It's good news from home. And it's not simply the news that Bethlehem and Judah have food to eat, but that the Lord had visited his people. Now, the The verb that the storyteller uses here in the Hebrew communicates more than just like, hey, he showed up. No, it has the idea that that the great I am, because this is the special name of the Lord. That's why it's in all caps in our English. It's Yahweh, or the older English version is Jehovah. He has come making a search among the people with a view of providing exactly what they need. A very personal God arrives and he expresses that particular care by giving them food and isn't it isn't it interesting that the that good news has spread all the way to moab who's going back and forth who's the messenger i don't know but news reached the fields of moab some of you have struggled for years perhaps a decade or more like naomi trying to make a life you are weary in the struggle. And as you look in the rearview mirror this morning, the long and winding road is littered with loss and sorrow, and you'd rather not even look in the rearview mirror, but just kind of look into the future. But the future is so full of unknowns that it's terrifying to you. And you too wonder if there's any good news in this world, if there's any grace for you, if there's any rest offered and I was thinking over the last couple of days, you know, the really good news that comes to us from a far country from an age long ago and from Bethlehem itself is that God visited humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. It's never too early to celebrate Christmas, is it? I know it's only September, but for those who have known the rescue, who've known the good news that came out of Bethlehem, What an astonishing thing that God came in the person of Jesus Christ to earth and came not just to visit and make sure we had a few things, you know, in the cupboard, but actually came to live the perfect life that God required of us that we can never live and then to die the death as 
if he were the sinner that we are, the death that we deserved, I mean, he came to take our place fully. And so the good news, even in our day, originates in Bethlehem. 3,000 years ago, the good news was, hey, there's food in Bethlehem. Come home. 2,000 years ago, the bread of life came to Bethlehem to save our souls. Come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. Come adore on bended knee. Christ, the Lord, the newborn king. Well, Naomi responds to the news. Look at verse 7. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And now she offers a blessing and prayer to her daughters-in-law. And there are six prayers similar to this scattered through the book of Ruth. And all of them serve their own uh, unique purpose to point us to a God who answers prayers like these and who will, in fact, bless ordinary people even when they think, I, I, there's nothing in my power to bless you with. I almost thought of organizing this little four-part series strictly around the prayers, uh, but just couldn't quite make all of that come together and everything else. So I'm just going to throw that out for you. Here's the first one, though. Look, look here uh, at the text with me, uh, verse 8. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. There it is. There's the first word of blessing. May, may Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And Naomi actually uses a, a very beautiful word, and it's going to be fleshed out through this whole story. It's the Hebrew word chesed. It has to do with an undeserved kindness. We sometimes translate it with steadfast love, and that's why we read from the Psalms this morning about the steadfast love of the Lord that, that reaches beyond the heavens. And God's going to demonstrate that here. But Naomi is making the point, oh, my prayer blessing over you girls is that you would experience the steadfast love of the Lord because you've been nothing but steadfast in your love for me. So that tells you something about their relationship. And then she goes on in verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find rest, and they're all in need of it. Bless their hearts. I mean, the loss that they have suffered, the pressure that is on them, three widows together. I mean, where do they turn? What do they do? And, and in Naomi's mind, the, the solution for this, go home. Your, your moms would welcome you. There are going to be other men there who would gladly marry you. And so she kisses them, and, and they lift up their voices and wept. It's a big cry fest. And we understand why. Now, it's interesting to me that in this prayer of, of blessing... Uh, there are two other houses mentioned. And, and what I failed to tell you earlier is that Bethlehem is, uh, again, a Hebrew word that means house of bread. And that's the irony. When there's a big famine that breaks out, the house of bread has no bread. But there are two other houses that are mentioned here. And the first is the house of your mother, beth Ema, if we were using the Hebrew words here. And then the house of a new a newly found husband, Beth Isha. And, and really, as the readers or the hearers of the story, we ought to pause and say, well, where are they going to find steadfast love and rest? If, if they go with Naomi, will they find it in Bethlehem? Humanly speaking, it doesn't make sense because they're foreigners. They have no personal interest there aside from Naomi. I mean, they don't know people there. They have no business to you know, establish their... But if they go back to Beth Ema, mom's house, or Beth Isha, 
a future husband's house, well, humanly speaking, that, that's what makes sense. And they say to her, they protest in verse 10, no, we will return with you to your people. Now, again, Naomi's speaking out of a realistic yet hopeless heart. Verse 11, she says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back. She says it multiple times in this passage. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait? That is, would you actually stay in one place with any expectation that a marriage is going to come around? And let's be realistic. Even if Naomi could have sons and they grow to, to marriageable age, they're probably looking at those two ladies at that point going, really, Mom? Like, do, do I have to? So this is reasonable. She says, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And that last phrase is so densely packed with important truth that we should park there, almost have like one entire message on this. But let me just throw out a couple of ideas for you. When she first of all says it's exceedingly bitter, think of it this way. She's saying this is so hard for me to bear What has happened? I don't fully understand. I can't fully comprehend. It is very difficult for me to accept it as it is. It's very difficult for me to bear. Some of that is driven by her love for these girls. What mother-in-law who has daughters-in-law like these wouldn't want to provide for them in some extraordinary way but it's it's beyond her capacity and what she has suffered what's brought them to this point is something that she can't fully comprehend or bear and then she says the hand of the lord has gone out against me now this is tough but this is real and this is biblical theology uh at, at its rawest what naomi is saying is the lord has come after me in these 10 years. The Lord has done this. Yeah, my sons were, were weak and sickly from birth, but they died not because they just, you know, it was an unfortunate thing. Like, no, the Lord had his hand in that. My husband died. Wasn't a freak accident. Wasn't the product of random chance in a universe that no one really controls or orders. No, this is the Lord at work. And there are some people who struggle and want to say, well, then a God who does this kind of thing is evil. But I would slow you down there and say, first of all, the God of the Bible is not evil. There's no darkness in him. It's impossible for him to sin or to commit evil. But if you pull a sovereign God out of the hard circumstances of your life, then you actually have no future hope that someone who has that kind of power might step back into your world and set it all right. We all feel like this. We all have those experiences in life, those string of events that really do just break us and we say, God, what what have you done to me? Why? This is exceedingly hard for her to bear. They're standing at a crossroads. They can't possibly understand the, the significance of this moment just like you and I rarely if ever ever understand the significance of those crossroad moments God brings us to you look back on it and some of you're like oh that was a big deal we had no idea then what God was going to do or I had no idea then what making that choice would do well this is one of those moments and Orpah makes this sensible even honorable decision she kisses Naomi 
and returns home. Oh, and there's another cry fest. Then they lifted up their voices, verse 14, and wept again. Ruth makes an extraordinary and unexpected and humanly speaking, risky at best, foolish at worst decision. Look at verse 15. Naomi says to her, see, your sister-in-law has gone back. Oh, sorry, I skipped this. End of verse 14. Ruth clung to her. Now Naomi says, verse 15, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. That's loaded with significance, isn't it? Return after your sister-in-law. Why wouldn't you? Moabite born, Moabite bred. It's the culture you know. The people there waiting for you. Your mom would open her house again. There are probably a lot of eligible uh, younger men who would, who would marry you. The prospects are good in Moab. Go, go home and return to your gods. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. For, for how little we know about Naomi, I think one thing we can be sure of at this moment is that Ruth has heard her mother-in-law talk about the one true God. And I would say, I would go so far as to say, has seen in her mother-in-law something of faith that compels her to say, if I got to choose between your God, mom, and the gods back home in the house of my mom, in the house of a future husband, I'm going with you and your God. It's beautiful. It's powerful. And she goes on to say, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And so she's renouncing her ethnic and religious roots and, and adopting the nationality and religion of Naomi, as one author writes. And isn't it interesting that the story begins with Naomi losing her home, losing her husband, losing her sons, losing her heritage in many ways, and facing a great deal of uncertainty, the, the pressure, the grinding pressure of being a widow in that culture. But now she is receiving maybe the most remarkable gift of life from the hand of Yahweh in this daughter-in-law. And here's Ruth willingly making a decision that mirrors, in a way, the decision Naomi was forced into. And, and Ruth swears under oath, may the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Wow, there's loyalty. I mean, that's like, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, pinky promise, you know, like blood brothers, blood mother-in-law, sister, blood in-laws. I mean, this is, this is big time. And, and look at Naomi's response. It's one of the few times in the story she doesn't seem to have anything to say. Verse 18, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. I'd love to know the details. We'll just have to wait until heaven. What was that trip like? Did you continue in silence? Did you finally have conversation? What was it like? Well, fi finally, Naomi is headed in the right direction. And while famine was a catalyst that moved her out of the house of bread, God's kindness is now the catalyst that has got her headed back the other direction and she's already experiencing an and an unimaginable kindness that God said, oh, by the way, Naomi, I'm bringing a daughter-in-law named Ruth with you. 
Now, very quickly in these last few verses, and it wrap, I mean, just happens in a hurry. There's an unexpected return here, and Naomi uh, is going to say some things here, again, acknowledging God's control over all of her life, the difficult calamity that she experienced over the past de- decade. But here it is. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, that is bitter for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And now she uses one of the names of God that to, to try to transliterate it out of the Hebrew. It's the name Shaddai. Some of you know El Shaddai. And that's God Almighty. And again, where's, how is she filtering the hard things of life? She's doing it through a rich and simple and, and true theology of who God is. Listen to what One commentator writes, the Old Testament associates Shaddai with God's cosmic rulership. By nature, great and mysterious, Shaddai dispenses blessings, promises great destinies, and assigns fates to the wicked and the righteous. Naomi rightly referred to Shaddai in this context. Her fate could have come from no other source, and so also its future reversal. And she has a profound awareness that God's been at work. Verse 21, look at what she says. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Oh, pause. Has she actually returned empty? Who's at her side? Yet to cut her some slack, went away with a husband she loved. He's gone. Went away with two sons that she loved. They're gone. So there's truth in this. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. There it is again. Shaddai has dealt very bitterly with me and Shaddai has brought calamity upon me. What we can all learn from and appreciate here is that she doesn't attribute this to bad luck. There's a dear lady who was, she's now with the Lord. Um, Kristen and I loved her and her husband very much. Mrs. Wood was her name. And um, she, she, would, she always called me Danny. I actually, coming out of high school, worked in a business office where she also worked for a couple of years, and she kept tabs on me and, and um, even down to who I was dating and interested in and all of that, and I could tell you some funny stories along those lines, but one thing that Mrs. Wood was famous for saying is, in God's economy, there is no such thing as luck, or chance was another variation, and she's right. You are not here today as a result of random chance. You weren't brought into the world randomly. You haven't even experienced the hard things in life to date by chance. There's an almighty God behind it and beneath it and over it and also ahead of it. Naomi attributes nothing to chance. Again, an author and commentator has been really helpful in my own study writes, Naomi's words point to the mysterious and often from a human perspective, unjust workings of God. But one must realize that her outburst, in fact, assumes a positive view of God, namely that he controls the universe, normally with justice. Her case is an exception, though not a rare one, but such is the mystery of God. I'm also mindful at this point, she hasn't lived to the end of the story, but we always, think, we, we always feel like that our present existence is kind of the last chapter of the life we've been living. And it's just not. 
And for the same reasons that you and I love to read great stories, and that means plowing through some scary chapters and difficult chapters, we read books and are enthralled with great stories because we believe when we start reading page one that when we get to the end, it will turn for the good. And those are the only kinds of stories that God Almighty writes for those who follow him. I know some of you are in really dark chapters at the moment, and you feel like this chapter just never ends. Or if this chapter did, then we just opened the next chapter with the same kind of darkness and difficulty and sorrow and loss and devastation. God, where are you? And he says, I'm here. At the same time, some of you have actually walked away from him. And he's allowing the hard things to continue, not, not because he's trying to make your life a living hell, but he's actually trying to save you from the eternal hell. And he's allowing the difficulty to get your attention so that you, like Ruth, would hear just a little piece of good news from a far land. There's bread in Bethlehem because that's where God visited. Let's go to Bethlehem. Will you turn? Or will you continue to try to make your own way in this world? It's reasonable on one hand, but it's actually not the right decision because God never asks you to save yourself. Verse 22, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. It's been a long decade for her. It's been a long 10 years of declining strength, of diminishing resources, of death, the real sorrow of bearing a husband and two sons, the soul-withering pressure of widowhood and figuring out how to make ends meet. No wonder her friends aren't sure. Is this Naomi? Ten years of stress will change your, your, your facial features, won't it? But then we read this little line. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. God's at work, breaking the famine, comforting the sorrowful, showing kindness to those who are so beaten down. I would encourage you to read to the end, and I'd encourage you to read the story again and again and again until you find yourself in the middle of it and saying, God, we trust you. Though tears are great and comforts few at this moment, we trust in mercies ever new. The look of faith looks to God.